I'm going to begin a new series of sermons this morning. I'm going to begin to dig into the life of the prophet Daniel. His story is recorded in the Old Testament book that bears his name, a book that he wrote. And one of the unique things about Daniel is that he did a fantastic job of linking the stories he tells to events that we can verify through secular history and research. So as we read through the book of Daniel, there's a lot that happens in the book of Daniel that we can tie to specific times and specific places, specific dates. And we kind of know the context of what was going on in the world around Daniel as he tells his story. And the starting point for that, I'm going to take a little bit of time in this this first sermon that I'm going to preach about Daniel, a little bit of time to just kind of give you the global context, because it's a very, very important part of the story. There's going to be a map on the screen that shows you a part of the world we refer to as the ancient Near East in the year 605 B.C., 600 years or so before the birth of Christ, 605 BC, you see the map there. If you're good at geography, you'll recognize the map, the modern day nations of of Egypt and Saudi Arabia, Iraq and Kuwait, uh, Israel, Syria, Turkey, you'd find all of those places on this map if we were to overlay the modern nations. But in 605, it didn't look like that at all. In 605, Daniel was living in a very small kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, and that that green oval that I put right in the middle of the screen there. Now, Daniel was part of a noble, perhaps a ruling family. We don't know exactly how, but Daniel was probably at least a shirt tail relative of the king or maybe a one of a, a handful of other ruling families in Judah. In 605, though, Daniel would have been a very, very young man, uh, likely no more than 15 years old. We can think of Daniel at this point in the story as essentially a junior higher. And in 605, Daniel's homeland, the kingdom of Judah, it was in a very precarious position. As you can see on the map, it was surrounded by three very, very powerful empires. To the north, you had the kingdom of Assyria. To the south, you had the kingdom of Egypt. And to the east, you had the kingdom of Babylon. And for the previous two centuries, roughly 200 years, Assyria had been the unquestioned superpower in the area. They had destroyed virtually every kingdom in the area except for Judah. They had never quite gotten their hands all the way on Judah for a variety of reasons. Now, that's not to say that things were going well in Judah. Judah was constantly having to defend itself against the prospect of an Assyrian takeover. And in order to do that, they went to great lengths. They even hired the Egyptians in some cases to to defend them and protect them against Judah, which meant they had Egyptian forces riding all over their kingdom. It also meant that they had to pay exorbitant amounts of tribute money to the the Egyptian king in order for to have his his protection. It was a little bit like a, a mafia sting going on there, right? You have to pay for this. And so Judah was just in terrible, terrible, terrible shape. But by the end of the seventh century, the Assyrian Empire up to the north was actually on the decline. And the Babylonian Empire off to the east was on the rise. Now, as much as the Egyptians didn't like the Assyrians, they were even more fearful 
of a rising Babylonian empire. So the Egyptians did something perhaps a little bit surprising. They actually sent their armies in 605 to Assyria to unite with the Assyrians to try and defend everybody against the advancing Babylonians. But it didn't matter. It was, it was not to be. In 605, those three superpowers fought a huge battle and the Babylonians defeated the united forces of Assyria and Egypt. And that was pretty much the end of the Assyrian Empire. Even Egypt, though it wasn't destroyed, they had to bring their forces, retreat all the way back to the African continent, and they were never really much of a player in that region again. And that left this tiny kingdom of Judah all alone. Looks like a grape there hanging on the vine, doesn't it? Ripe for the plucking. And so the Babylonian army marched on Judah. The commander of the Babylonian army was a man whose name, if you've read the Old Testament, you'll probably recognize. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the son of the king of Babylon. And so having defeated the united forces of Assyria and Egypt, he turned his army south and marched on Judah with the intention of taking over the kingdom and ruining Jerusalem. But just as he got to Jerusalem, word arrived from back home in Babylon that his father, the king, had died. And Nebuchadnezzar was told to return home immediately so that he could ascend to the throne and be the new ruler of the Babylonian empire. And so rather than completely destroying the kingdom of Judah, rather than tearing down Jerusalem and, and just destroying everything, Nebuchadnezzar, because he's, he doesn't have time to do that now, he just rides through Jerusalem. He takes some prisoners takes a few captives, and he and his soldiers help themselves to some of the treasures from the temple in Jerusalem. They don't destroy the nation or the city completely, but they help themselves to the best, the best treasures and the best young men, including Daniel. And that's where Daniel's story begins. I want to read it to you. As it's recorded in Daniel chapter one, I'm gonna read the first seven verses of his story. You'll see them on the screen. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, 
to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. We're going to put our bookmarks right there, and that's as far as we're going to go this week. I think I deserve a round of applause for getting through all of those names. <laughs> Typically, when you read Old Testament names, just a little trick of the trade here, pastors. You can amen this if you want. The trick is to just do it confidently. Nobody really knows how to pronounce it. You just say whatever you say. But when I got two, two veteran pastors in the congregation, it's a little like, man, I'm going to have to actually do this the right way now. We should probably just pray and go home. It's not going to get any better than that. This is the very beginning of Daniel's story. And I got a few spoiler alerts today. One of them is this. I feel like there's a couple of compelling, unique things about the entirety of Daniel's story as it's told in the Bible. We'll, we'll explore it together over the course of the next few months. But I can tell you now, one of the unique things is the scope of Daniel's timeline. As I said, we're dealing with a junior higher here, but we're going to follow him for 70 more years. We're going to follow him all the way into his old age. The other thing that I think is unique and noteworthy about Daniel is he's one of the few heroes of scripture who is presented to us without any obvious defect. Most Bible characters, as you know, they have major character flaws, don't they? David is a violent womanizer. Noah had a drinking problem. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was pompous and arrogant. But Daniel has no discernible morality issues. We virtually always see him doing the godly thing. Now, I, of course, am not suggesting that Daniel was perfect. Although if you were going to pick a perfect person, Daniel would be a good name to give them. I'm not suggesting that Daniel was perfect, but whatever imperfections he may have had, they never really figure into his story. They're not part of the story. Daniel was a righteous man who lived a righteous life. But it was a difficult life. It was an incredibly difficult life. Everything about it was in ruin. Daniel may have been a godly man, but at a very, very young age, he was captured by an ungodly king. His family was destroyed, and he was carried off to live in an ungodly empire. He would spend his entire life living in a kingdom that he never wanted to see. Far away from the place that God had promised his people as their ancestral homeland, their inheritance. Beautiful as ancient Babylon was, right? The hanging gardens, the architecture, all of the things storied in, in the fables of the ancient world. Beautiful as ancient Babylon was for Daniel, it represented ruin. But sometimes a righteous life must be lived in ruin. Sometimes a righteous life must be lived in ruin. Sometimes terrible things happen. Sometimes tragedy besets us through no fault of our own. Sometimes you're trying to help guys out and you run over your foot with the lift. <laughs> but sometimes the difficulties that we go through aren't just for a season. Sometimes they don't merely come and go. Sometimes life just stinks. And Daniel's life just stunk. Verse 1 what I read earlier, during the third year of Jehoiakim's king reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Two power-hungry kings. Daniel had 
no dog in this fight, nothing against any of them. He probably just wanted to live his life in peace. And yet the argument between two kings ends up defining the tragedy of Daniel's life for 70 years. You know, the big picture of the Old Testament is that the people of Judah could have expected God to keep them safe as long as they remained faithful to God. But they hadn't remained faithful to God. The Bible says that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was an evil king. The Bible says he oppressed poor people. The Bible says he ignored God. Daniel wasn't the only prophet alive at this time. Another one by the name of Jeremiah was famous for accusing King Jehoiakim of injustice and dishonesty. And the people of Judah on the whole, they were no more godly than their king was. But Daniel, Daniel was different. Daniel was one of the good ones. Daniel, as best we can tell, was honest and kind and godly. And yet when the armies of Babylon came, it was Daniel, not King Jehoiakim, who got carted off and taken into captivity. Now, how's that for fair? Daniel was a godly young man who, as best we can tell, had never strayed from his commitment to God. But he would spend the rest of his life living as a captive in a godless kingdom far from home while his beloved homeland would eventually be brought to total ruin. Is that really what he deserved? Come to think of it. Is getting what we deserve part of what we should expect from life? I mean, doesn't the Bible teach us that God takes care of his own, that God rewards faithfulness with blessing? Now, before you nod your head or shake it, let me say this. That's a very, very difficult question to wrestle with. And it's one that the Old Testament wrestles with throughout. Let me give you a couple of examples. Job's faithfulness was unparalleled, the Bible says. But he lost his home. He lost his family. He lost his money. And he lost his health. The Bible says that David's heart was so much like God's that God chose him out of everyone to be the king. But then David spends the first several years of his reign running for his life and hiding in caves. Ruth, Ruth was the portrait of loyalty, but she lost her husband, lost her homeland, lost her entire means of survival just for being loyal and being willing to obey God. Righteous lives lived in ruin. How does it happen? Usually when we experience ruin, we perceive it to be the work of the enemy. And we, we, we drag out terms like spiritual warfare. We talk about the curse of sin. We talk about the attack of the enemy. We pray for God's deliverance. We pray for God's vengeance. We pray that God would fight our battles and that God would rise up and make everything right again. And sometimes, maybe even often times, that's exactly the right way to pray. But sometimes God's work is the cause of the ruin. Sometimes God's work is actually the cause of the ruin. I remember when, when Tyler was a baby, he was still crawling around. He couldn't walk yet. Tyler was a, a gifted climber. 
The boy couldn't walk, but he could scale anything. And we were constantly finding him on furniture that he shouldn't be on, on the kitchen countertops that he shouldn't be on. We had those gates, toddler gates, you know, that you put up in the doorway to keep the kids out of the dining room. And he would just climb up the gate and go to the other side. I once stacked two gates right in a row, thinking he then at least couldn't pull himself up on it. No, that little boy went right up the two gates. We used to know that Tyler's nap was over because we heard the thud, because when he was done sleeping, he would climb up the side of his crib and just launch himself into the abyss of his room. The boy could climb over anything. And as a little baby, you couldn't necessarily tell him, or he, you know, he wasn't big enough to understand not allowed to do that. He, he didn't know, you know what was allowed and what wasn't. So sometimes he would climb and I would go to grab him and he would reach out a hand to ask for my help <laughs> to get over whatever he was climbing. He couldn't talk, but it was as if he was saying, Dad, could you lift me up there? I'd really like to be up there right now. He would reach out his hand to ask for my help in getting lifted up. And because I'm a good dad, I, I, I would grab him, but instead of putting him up, I'd put him down on the floor. And he'd look up at me with this look of betrayal in his face. I asked you, Dad, to lift me up, and you set me down instead. What's this all about? Have any of you ever felt like Tyler in your prayers? Did you ever ask God to lift you up, but when he answered, it felt more like he was pulling you down? I'll bet a lot of the citizens of Judah felt that way when they saw Nebuchadnezzar's armies stroll through the streets and take whatever treasures they pleased from the temple. I'll bet a lot of them felt that way, but not Daniel. There was no impulse on Daniel's part to demand that God protect them from all of Nebuchadnezzar's armies. There was no cry for a sudden reversal of fortune. There was no plea for vengeance. Nothing else because Daniel understood something that must have been very difficult to acknowledge. Why was Nebuchadnezzar victorious? The second line of Daniel's story tells us exactly why. Verse 2, the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory. The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple. When Nebuchadnezzar's armies arrived in Jerusalem, there were probably a lot of people crying out to God, pleading with him to come against the evil forces. They were saying, God, rebuke the enemy. Rebuke the enemy. There were probably others in Judah wondering if Nebuchadnezzar's victory meant that the gods of the Babylonians really were too strong for Yahweh. Could it be? But somehow Daniel recognized that something different was happening. Daniel is on record as saying that God hadn't abandoned Judah. God hadn't been overcome by evil. God wasn't surprised by what was going on. And God wasn't just sitting idly by twiddling his thumbs while evil ran its inevitable course. None of those things were happening. Daniel is on record as saying God had actually caused this terrible thing to happen. Now that might sound like a defeatist attitude. Maybe Daniel wondered about that. Maybe Daniel was tempted to second guess himself. Maybe Daniel felt like, am I really getting this right? Or have I just like given up on life? 
It couldn't have been easy for him to resign himself to the idea that God was calling him not only to remain righteous, but to do so in ruin. But as it turns out, Daniel wasn't the only one who recognized that God was at the source of this and that the evil kingdom of Babylon wasn't something to rage against, at least not now. While Daniel was being carted off to Babylon, there was another prophet. I referenced him earlier. It was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not so nice as Daniel, and so Jeremiah got left behind in Jerusalem. And so while Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, he may or may not have known Daniel personally. We don't know for sure. But a few years later, he wrote a letter to everybody who had been taken captive. And Daniel almost certainly would have read that letter. Let me read to you. Uh, This is a portion of his letter, and you can find it in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, listen to this, watch this. This is what the Lord says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See what Jeremiah is saying? Not all those who got carried. This is what God says to all of those that I carried off. Who did this thing? Jeremiah says God did it. And what does God tell the exiles through Jeremiah's voice? Stand up, fight for yourselves, resist the powers, organize, protest, circulate petitions, get online and do a GoFundMe so you can come home. Is that what Jeremiah says that God is telling them to do? No, here's what God tells them to do. Build houses. Settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, get married, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. In other words, get ready to be grandparents in this place. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Oof. In other words, recognize that I am sovereign and that I haven't forgotten you. But do not fight against me. Choose instead to live righteously in the ruins. And while you're at it, ask me to bless Babylon. Not every Babylon we face is something to be avoided. It's not always something to be battled. It's not something to be cursed and resisted. Sometimes we need to recognize God's hand in what feels like ruin. And when that happens, our duty is to live on in righteousness. There is a way to remain righteous in ruin And Daniel is going to spend the rest of his life modeling that for us. And his righteousness is going to stand out like a sore thumb because that's not the way the world works. He's living in another kingdom now, isn't he? He's living in a godless place and his righteousness won't always be recognized for what it is because sometimes the world calls righteousness by a different name. Sometimes the world calls righteousness by a different name. That literally happened to Daniel. Did you catch that at the end of the passage we read? 
Daniel and his three friends, each of them was given a new name. Now, you probably know that, that most ancient cultures used names as a way of describing the essence of someone's character. And when someone's character was revealed, their name was changed accordingly. And so if you're a lover of classic American literature, You'll remember Cooper's novel, The Last of the Mohicans, where, where Natty Bumpo becomes known as Hawkeye. If classic American literature isn't your speed, that's okay. You'll remember that Anakin Skywalker was called Darth Vader when his character was revealed. Or perhaps, who my age will remember Lieutenant John, John, ugh, Lieutenant John Dunbar? Dances with wolves, right? When his character is revealed, he's given a new name. Well, that's what happens to Daniel. Uh, the, the name Daniel is an ancient Hebrew name. I, of course, know this because it's my name. Uh, Daniel in ancient Hebrew means God is my judge. It's a good, godly name, isn't it? And he gets carted off to Babylon and the Babylonian authorities say, we're not going to call you God is my judge anymore. We're going to call you Belteshazzar, which means Baal protects his life. False God of the Babylonians, Baal. And so for the rest of his life, every time somebody called Daniel by his name, Belteshazzar, he would hear the lie that his God had been defeated and that he owed everything to Baal. And I can only imagine that every time somebody called out his name, something in Daniel's heart cried out to God and said, that's not right. And Yahweh said, I know. I know, Daniel. Be righteous anyhow. There are a lot of lies that you hear the world say every day. As often as they call out your name. And there's something in your heart that cries out to God and says, that's not right. And just as he did with Daniel, I believe Yahweh is saying to you, I know my child, I know, I know, I know. Be righteous anyhow. Can we do that? Can we live according to the righteous principles of God's kingdom while we make our homes in an earthly kingdom with very, very different ideas about what's right and what's wrong? For instance, can we determine to live our lives with sexual integrity even when the world calls our values bigoted and hate-filled? Can we commit to boldly proclaiming the gospel with love and with grace even when the world calls it intolerant and disrespectful? Can we agree to submit to one another in Christ and, and to forgive or turn the other cheek when we've been wronged, even when the world calls it weak and spineless, the world calls it by another name. And that's why we can't count on the world to tell us what's right and what's wrong, because they're speaking a different language than the people of God speak. They have different names for things. But that doesn't mean that God is asking us to go to battle against them. Pray for the peace and the prosperity of Babylon. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper there. And so just as God gave Daniel over to Babylon, he has planted us 
in this ruinous world to be emblems of his righteousness. Church, we are in this for the long haul. We're just getting started on Daniel's story. And we are in this for the long haul. This world and its kingdoms as they are, they may not be our eternal home, but it is most certainly the place that God has planted us. And sometimes that means that righteous lives must be lived out in ruin. And maybe, like Daniel, we can learn to make homes in Babylon. Maybe we can learn how to ignore the lies and rise above the ruin. Maybe we'll discover that the faithfulness of God is sufficient. Maybe we'll discover that his grace is more than enough and that his strength in our obedience is more powerful than a thousand Nebuchadnezzars. Maybe we too can learn to be righteous in ruin. Would you pray with me? Father, as we incline our hearts toward one another's stories this morning, I recognize, we recognize, how many brothers and sisters we have just in this room who are living in ruin. Who are living in ruin. The circumstances of our lives feel like Nebuchadnezzar has has brought his armies to our doorstep. What we had planned, what we had hoped for, what we had wanted is not what we live. It's not what we see. And God, there's a very real part of us that feels like this is this huge offense against you. And everything in us from the very depths of our soul wants to crowd God make it different Lord this requires wisdom because there are things that we face in this world that we believe God you are calling us to rely on you to call out to you to say make it different Lord you do fight our battles you do stand up against our enemies you do surround your people with strength and with your faithfulness. Oh, but at the same time, sometimes righteous lives are lived out in ruin. Oh, this requires a discerning heart, Lord. This requires discerning hearts. Help us to learn to recognize where you are calling us to fight and where you are calling us to faithfulness. Lord, in our zeal, may we never raise our battle cries against what you, in fact, have done. Sometimes it's your work that we don't like. Lord, we confess to you in the silence of this moment. Father, sometimes there's things that you have done and we don't like it. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem to be fair. It feels like ruin. Like that baby, we thought we cried out to you, Daddy, pick me up, hold me, raise me up. But that's not what you did. Why? Why, God? Why?
Lord, we submit ourselves to the fact that we may not know the answers to that question. But still we hear the voice of the Spirit who says to us, I know. I know. Help us to be righteous even in the ruin. Lord, help us to rise above the confusion we live in because in in this kingdom, this worldly kingdom, things are called by their wrong names all the time. What is wrong is called right. What is right is called wrong. What is good is called bad. And what is bad is called good. We hear it all the time. We're surrounded with these deluge of lies. It seems as often as someone calls our name, they're saying something that isn't true according to the truth of your kingdom. Lord, help us to hear the voice of your spirit. Lord, I pray for those who are living through a Babylon experience right now. I pray that with the gentleness and the grace of your spirit, you would show us how to live righteously, even in ruin even in ruin. I pray, Lord, that you would give us Daniel hearts, that we would know how to be in a place we weren't meant to be. And I pray that you would bless us and strengthen and encourage us by your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. And everyone says, amen.